Welcome to episode 22 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We promised you singing and dancing this week, and hang on in there because we're coming to that. But first, we wanted to tell you a bit about new theatre. Now, the Old Vic is streaming its in-camera playback series, and this week at 7.30 on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, you can see Matt Smith and Claire Foy not playing Prince Philip and the Queen, but in Duncan McMillan's play, Lungs. It's a play about a couple wrestling with whether to bring a baby into such a troubled world, and it's backed by popular demand. And I've got to say that I have seen rave reviews about Lungs. I think it was briefly on, you know, at brief moment of time, which we barely remember when there wasn't a full-on lockdown. It has had rave reviews, so that is something I would definitely watch, and you should too. I am watching it. I've got my ticket. I've got my <laughs> ticket for Thursday. I'm very excited. Well, the great thing about these is you can never not get a ticket. I know. <laughs> it's so exciting. It doesn't have... That. Well, actually, having said that, I did look on the website, and it said Friday tickets were in low um, supply, so I would get on the website quickly because obviously they're pretending that they're running out just to get everybody excited. But anyway, I've got my ticket. But the National Theatre has also got a lot coming up because it's building on its hugely successful weekly home offerings to launch its at-home subscription service. You can either subscribe for 8.32 a month plus VAT or rent by the play. And there are all kinds of gems to watch from Dick Whittington, which I was very sad to miss when Tier 4 kicked in. Obviously, two big classics like Coriolanus, Othello, The Cherry Orchard and Amadeus. So go to ntathome.com to start watching. And also, obviously, it would be remiss of me not to mention Digital Theatre, digitaltheatre.com, which is mainly aimed at schools, colleges and universities, providing them with a first-class education service in drama, but does also have a consumer subscription service. So if the National Theatre doesn't have everything you want, also try digitaltheatre.com. Anyway, on to our first guest. Now, regular listeners will know that the week before last, Ed discovered that he had something in common with the wonderful singer Patricia Hammond. They both know Ian Rosenblatt. Now, I didn't know Ian Rosenblatt, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't even know who he was, but one look at his Wikipedia page convinced me (laughs) this was a very serious breach in my cultural knowledge, because his wiki page is about the biggest I've ever seen. It's not something you can skim through. I had to get a cup of tea and settle down to read it properly. The umbrella word for him would be polymath. But Ed, as you know him, perhaps you can introduce him to our listeners. Yes, I will, Charlotte. I'm still reeling from the fact that Ian has the biggest wiki you've ever seen. I assume, <laughs> I assume that Ian, Ian uh, writes it himself in the, late, late into the night. But Disgraceful. Ian Rosenblatt, OBE, who I've known for a number of years, is an incredibly successful lawyer. But he's also chairman of Simon Cowell's company, Psycho. So there'll be lots of name dropping and Simon Cowell anecdotes, I hope, during this podcast. But the main focus of the podcast is because actually Ian is an incredible philanthropist in the world of classical music. He founded and sponsored a Rosenblatt Recitals, London's only world-class series of opera recitals, which was based at the Wigmore Hall, but I also went to see them at the Royal Albert Hall. He founded the wonderful Branscombe Festival in Devon, which I've also attended. You can work out by now that I'm a bit of an Ian Rosenblatt groupie. <laughs> he has roles with the Royal Philharmonic Society, which is, I think, where we first met. 
the Susan Chilcott Scholarship Fund for Young Singles Singers. And he also saved the much loved ailing <laughs> Les Aldrich Music Shop yes. in Northwest London, which he yes. I think he uh, is behind the counter every Saturday morning. I could go on and on and on, but let's hear from the man himself. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Ed and Charlotte. Good morning. Good I don't morning, know what to Ed. say. My Wikipedia page, <laughs> uh, I didn't actually write it all myself, only a little bit. Well, I don't think you could have done it. It would have taken too long. <laughs> <laughs> I got my Wiki people to do it for me. <laughs> well, where to start? I mean, as I said to Ed, I really, you know, I've never seen a page that you had to just scroll down and down and down and then some more. Now, your accomplishments are clearly far too many to squidge as into is my a quick ego, podcast clearly. chat. But, but <laughs> let's get going with your recitals. Obviously, we can't visit the Wigmore Hall at the moment, but you have a dedicated YouTube channel, don't you, for opera well, fans? Yes, well, the, the live, the, the recital series actually stopped in 2017, after, no, 18. You know, I get my years mixed up these days. But anyway, after about 18 years of two, and 200 concerts, live concerts, the actual, they, they, uh, I, I, I hung them up. And, um, the, and then the YouTube channel obviously has got, material from the recitals going back almost to the beginning. I think more interestingly, recently, because of lockdown, I, I kind of I brought them back to life again in a virtual way by contacting 30 singers from all over the world, America, Poland, you know, Italy, France, you name it. And we got them to record lots and lots of material. Um, uh, in fact, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of music. Anyway, long story short, we created eight concerts out of 30 singers, all of which are uh, available online. And we did it to raise money for Target Ovarian Cancer, which my wife, Ember, is the chair of. Can we just uh, go back a bit, obviously, Ian, because Charlotte doesn't know you at all and I know you incredibly well. So I'll be able, <laughs> I'll be able to tease out much more about that. <laughs> about the real contribution you made to music. I want to concentrate on two themes. First of all, you grew up in Liverpool. And I think I'm right. I think I'm right in saying that your dad used to sort of sing around the house or something. He did. You, well, you, got yeah, your, well. You, you got your love of music as a young boy. Tell yes, I did. That. I did. So, so my father was the youngest of 12, eight brothers. And they were, it was a typical, you know, Jewish immigrant story. My, his parents were immigrants from Russia. His mother was, his parents were pretty, were, were illiterate actually. So singing in my family was more important than absolutely anything. So my father, he was a wonderfully, uh, in a good way, delusional kind of romantic. He actually used to imagine that he was the greatest opera singer of all time. And he used to make me record him while he was in the bath. He'd go stand outside the door with a tape, with those reel-to-reel -reel tape things. And he said, just play it, just switch it on, and then I'll do my thing, and then we'll see how I sound. And obviously, you know, even to his ears, when the, on the playback, it sounded a lot worse than it did in the, as he imagined <laughs> in his own head. So that's, the, that's a very quick story. I, I mean... Dr. Dr. Vasey, I don't want you to think that I'm cheating as my psychiatrist, but there's a lot more I could tell you. No, I love that story. <laughs> but then, and then the, so moving on from that, so you, you did, you've done very well as a lawyer and you've given 
a lot of the money you've made to the arts. So let's start with the Rose and Black recitals, because I think the really important point about the Rose and Black recitals to get across is it's you found and supported young unknown singers, many of whom have gone on to stellar careers. So tell us a bit about the kind of star finding you've done. Not that, not that you, I want, you know, you wouldn't be interested in saying I made these people a star, but you did find people who were unknown and you supported yes. them. Well, the whole them. point, the whole point originally when I, when we, when this recital series started was that, um, and obviously this was going back now to sort of 20 years. So uh, yes, of course there was the internet and, and, and all that, but Actually, when I was growing up, and until relatively recently, if you wanted to, you know, the only way you could hear people was either on a record or if you were able to afford to go to to hear them live in a in an opera house or or at a concert. Anyway, I decided that the Royal Opera House, which is the main outlet for operatic endeavour in the in the country, was very limited in the way it cast people, and I wasn't getting to hear voices that I wanted to hear. So I thought, actually, the world is full of great voices. I shall find these voices and I shall bring them here. And what we should do is find voices, people who are not actually students, but, you know, starting their career, but with the opportunity, possibility of, you know, becoming significant artists later on. And, How did and, you go about doing that? Well, it was quite, you know, first of all, people send you material. You hear, look... Juan Diego Flores, for example, is probably, you know, one of the most famous male opera singers in the in the world. Now, when I gave him a concert in 2001, uh, nobody ever heard of him. Wow. I mean, a, f- a few aficionados had heard of him. But, but I gave him a concert the, at St. John Smith Square when he was very, very young. And I heard him because... I had heard a recording of an opera from that was recorded from the Rossini Opera Festival, and there was a there was a, a, a tenor voice that had you know four or five bars to sing, and I thought, wow, that's an amazing voice. There was not a principal role at all; it was a title role. Who's that guy? And then I looked on the back of the cover of the album, and it said Juan Diego Flores, and I thought, I better let's get that man. Give us some of the big names that you. Uh, gave names, names. Who, okay, who were so unknown the, at the time. Unknown, well, or beginning. So Jose Cura, you know, at the beginning was, you know, became a huge star. I think he he still thinks he probably is. Um, <laughs> uh, there's the great baritone Carlos Alvarez, Javier Camarena, as the most one of the most sort of latest ones who was actually got into the front page of the New York Times and even the Times in London because when he appeared in the the Metropolitan in New York, he was one of the, you know, I think he was the first person since Enrico Caruso or somebody to give an encore in the middle of an opera of an aria. So, <laughs> you know, it sounds like there's uh, all kinds of, there's, I'm just talking about men, but actually there's, some, you know, Eileen Perez, one of the great soprano, Angel Blue actually is probably... Now, were it not for the Metropolitan being shut, would be, you know, the Metropolitan's big star for the next sort of, I think she's probably contracted there for the next five years or more. Um, So, you know, I could go on. I mean, there's 200 of them, Ed. Let's move from the heady um, heights of the Metropolitan to um, Branscombe, a small village on the South Devon coast where you have a house. Now, you set up an arts festival in Branscombe, which must have been, which I've actually been to, where these great singers would come down and sort of sing in the village hall. 
Absolutely. Actually, I remember when you came because we were, I think the village was suffering a crisis that the local council was threatening to uh, close the close the loos on the beach. And I think somebody <laughs> lobbied you, uh, lobbied you as, the, as, the, as the nearest minister. government minister they could get their hands on to, to stand up and say, we cannot tolerate these loos being closed and I demand <laughs> that they stay open. Well done, so, Ed. <laughs> well, I don't think you, I think you were a bit reluctant, but I think you made no, some loos, sort of... loos are very much part of my repertoire. When I, was, <laughs> when I was Michael Howard's speechwriter, he hated me so much and thought I was such a rubbish speechwriter that literally the only speech he let me write was one about keeping the loos open in Folkestone. Which is the only speech I constituency. Was that where, his constituency? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the only speech yeah. I wrote for him where he didn't change a word. But anyway. Anyway, right, yes, yeah. Branscombe. Branscombe. <laughs> yes. So Branscombe, uh, so Branscombe is a wonderful place. And I thought, what wouldn't it be nice to use just the facilities of this tiny, tiny village to put on really in world-class performers. And uh, so we basically used to have a show on a Friday night and then uh, three on a Saturday and then a free concert on the beach with a band of the Royal Marines marching, doing the church service, marching through the village and then landing on the beach and doing doing their thing. So when I said to the local, the, the local kind of calf on the beach, there's going to be a lot of people coming onto this beach, you know, for this Royal Marine. Would you like to sell burgers and pizzas? They said, no, we wouldn't. So I said, okay, well, I'll get somebody else to do it instead, which we did. So, and I got the, one of the pubs said, um, when we said, would you mind putting some flyers in your, you know, just on the on the bar? They said, no, it's it's elitist crap. Oh dear! <laughs> so, and then when I stopped the festival, when I mean I did, I did three, I did three seasons, and then the following year, the Branscombe Players, they did a show in the Village Hall called Not the Branscombe Festival. <laughs> <laughs> so, is it still going in? No, I had to stop it because I actually, you know. I was bringing in people literally, like, I mean, I talked about Angel Blue before. Angel Blue in Branscombe Village Hall giving a concert. Francesca Maley, the leading tenor of La Scala in Branscombe Village Hall, you know? Uh, Luca Salzi, the biggest, greatest baritone in Italy singing today in Branscombe Village Hall. He arrived in Branscombe Village Hall, didn't know whether he was about to walk onto a stage of 5,000 people or or where he was. And he, he walks on and there's like 150 people sitting on deck chairs, you know. All these things, incredible instrumentalists, soloists, even the great Miss Hope Springs, the uh, Ty Jeffries, who has this character called Hope Springs. It's a sort of, you know, it's a drag act. Patricia Hammond, you know, I could go on. One day, some guy said to came up to me at the Tea Time concert and he said, are you Mr. Rosenblatt? And I said, yes. He said, well, I think you're a very rude man. I said, well, what have I done? <laughs> and he said, well, you put these reserved seats, stickers on, these, on the seats at the front for you and your family. I said, I do. He said, well, you've got no right to do that. I said, well, I am paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> Philanthropy is never awarded. You'll get your reward in heaven, Ian. But I just want to talk to you because, as Charlotte said, we could go on and on about the things you're doing, which is so interesting. But I also want to look at the 
Les Aldrich mm. Music Shop, which I think is in Golders oh, Green. No, no, Muswell Hill, Fortis Green Road, Muswell Hill, Muswell Hill. You saved this. Now, again, it's sort of you ahead of the curve. So you bought this music shop, obviously as a labour of love, but tell us a bit about it, its role as an institution. When my children were growing up and, and, and we lived in Highgate, then every single Saturday they would have to come with me to uh, this shop, Les Aldrich, in Muswell Hill, which is where I bought my originally LPs and then cassettes and then CDs. And it was a fantastic play. I mean, it was a vibrant place. It sold, you know, it was a, it's a proper old school music shop and famous because Ray Davis of the Kinks bought his first guitar there or his uncle oh. bought him. His first did it have guitar. proper listening booths and things? That back in those days it did. I mean, it's been there for seventy-five years. Wow! And, yeah. and Ray Davis actually has, is still a customer. In fact, a few years ago he did one of those things in the in the Evening Standard. You know, one of those Q and A's. You know, what's your favourite meal? Where do you like? What's your favourite shop? He said Les Aldrich and Muswell Hill, and which is thrilling. But um, it doesn't actually make any difference to <laughs> the viability of the business, which has been which is basically been going being, you know, heroically bankrupt since I bought it. One day, eight years or whatever it was ago, after a, a long gap, I found myself in Muswell Hill. I went into Les Aldrich and it looked in a terribly sorry state. And I said to the guy who owned it, what the hell's going on? And he said, I'm going to have to close it down because I just can't, there's this, you know, it's, it's, it's going broke. I can't, I can't keep it going anymore. And I said, you mustn't do that. I'll buy it now right now. And I do go there every Saturday and I work, well, work. I mean, there's not a lot of work to do, to be honest. I sit there mainly with my hands clasped to my chest and my eyes raised to heaven, hoping somebody's actually going to come in. Now, one person who I think could revive the fortunes of the Les Aldrich Music Shop if he deigned to pay a visit in his large black Rolls Royce would be your mate, Simon Cowell. So you are, <laughs> you're chairman of his company. I mean, that's quite a big deal. How did all that happen, and, and what do you do? <laughs> well, well, what's the plan all, for Psycho? Give us an insight. Well, well I can't. I can't. I, I mean, you know, mum's the word and all that. The problem, of course, um, for everybody, including him. I mean, superstars aren't immune from pandemics. Is that he's been stuck in? Uh, not that he. Not that it's. A, believe me, it's not. It's not hard work being stuck in Los Angeles in Malibu. Um, but he's been in Malibu since February last year. And then, of course, as you all know, I'm sure people know, he broke his back in the summer as well. So that wasn't a minute. So he hasn't actually, he's not, he couldn't come in his Rolls Royce to Les Aldridge because he's not here. I've had dinner with Simon Cowell twice. Have you? I once, uh, I got invited by Prime Minister David Cameron to Chequers to have dinner with Simon Cowell. And just before Simon Cowell arrived, David Cameron said to me, right, what shall I talk to Simon Cowell about? I said, I've no idea. <laughs> he said, but you, you, do, you, you, you know Simon Cowell, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. He said, what? <laughs> I, only, I only asked you to dinner here because I thought you were a friend of his. <laughs> You're not, and, and you've then, never met him before. And then a friend of mine who shall remain nameless was so annoyed that he himself, who is a friend of Simon Cowell, had not been invited to this Chequers dinner, that he then arranged a separate dinner in London for me to have dinner with me and Simon. Really? So for a very brief period... We were mates for about a week. But I'll tell you something, you know, what, what um, you know, obviously I was completely aware of his fame um, when I first got to know him. But I was, I mean, you know, what? it's kind of a weird thing. The first, the first time he actually came 
to my office to, you know, have sit with me for a few hours. You know, he turned up and, you know, there was all this, you know, hoo-ha, as you'd expect, in the building. Uh, and then at the end of the meeting, I took him down in the lift to show him out. And I, my office is in EC4, right in the city, you know, in the middle of, just surrounded by concrete buildings. Outside the front of the building was just a mob of people. <laughs> <laughs> going, Simon, Simon, you know, come on, my picture. He's amazing because, you know, somebody was said to him, oh, I met you last when we were in Birmingham at the you know, the auditions for blah, 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 and you were very nice to my mum. And he goes, oh, yes, of course. How is your mum? And everybody immediately, he actually remembers who I am. It's so, so Ed, he just, you know... Don't get overexcited. He just remembered who you are because <laughs> it's his job to remember who anybody is. Thanks for thanks for thanks for crushing, thanks for crushing my uh, <laughs> dream. Ian Rosenblatt, philanthropist yes. extraordinaire, Rosenblatt recitals, Susan Chilcott singles fund. I mean singers fund. <laughs> discoverer of young musical talent, owner of a record store. Simon Cowell's right-hand man. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank oh, I've you. had Thank such you. a good... What a way to start the day. I'm Honestly, I'm full of bounce and vim now. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Regulars will remember that just before Christmas, we talked to the choreographer Arthur Pitter about his unusually uplifting and optimistic production of The Little Match Girl for Sadler's Wells. Very sadly, literally the night before it was due to open, Tier 4 kicked in, so we never got a chance to see it. But we are delighted to say that Sadler's Wells has rallied magnificently with an all-day digital festival called Dancing Nation. The company has teamed up with BBC Arts and on Thursday this week, Dancing Nation will stream throughout the day on BBC iPlayer and on the Sadler's Wells website. It's fantastic. It comprises no less than 15 pre-recorded performances with artists staging a virtual takeover of the Sadler's Wells building. The event features interviews with and performances by big name dancers and choreographers alongside breakthrough talent across ballet, contemporary and hip hop dance styles. Now, one of those dancers and choreographers is Akram Khan, a huge star in the world of contemporary ballet. His work is known for being profoundly moving and the FT described him as being able to speak tremendously of tremendous things. Just <laughs> listing his awards would take up the whole podcast. But very, very briefly, he created a section of the London 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. He's collaborated with everyone from Juliet Binoche, Anish Kapoor, Anthony Gormley, Nitin Sorne to Kylie Minogue and Florence and the his work is integral to Dancing Nation and he's here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Akram. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thank <laughs> It's very you. good to see you, Akram. You too. Last time we met was late at night. On That's a right. stage, in fact. On a stage. For Sky Arts. For Sky Arts. Yeah. And uh, we met an up-and-coming pop star called Celeste. Yeah. Which I've been able to brag about. I'm afraid I went home and bragged about meeting Celeste, not Akram Khan. Okay. You're the no. past, Akram. She's the future. Uh, that's right. Well, I, <laughs> I, 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 bra I bragged about her too. Came home and bragged about it to my well, wife. You didn't, you didn't come home and say you met Ed Vasey. I can't believe that. <laughs> um, now, for Dancing Nation, you are going to be performing together with Natalia Osipova for the first time. Yeah. And the work is called Mud of Sorrow Touch. Tell us all yeah. about that. And indeed... Natalia Osipova, who is very, very famous. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do when Alistair asked me, what could you Alistair do? Alistair being the head of Sadler's Alistair Wells, being, I should yeah, say. The, Alistair the Spalding. The artistic director of Sadler's Wells. And uh, I was thinking, what is the point of this event? And it was really a response, I felt, to what's happening in the world. The sense of our, so many of our senses not being able to be active right now. Movement being one of them, of course. So I felt quite strongly to, what I was asking myself, what is it that I'm really lacking and missing right now? And that was the sense of touch, really. You know, dancing with someone else, partnering with someone else, being in a studio. And I heard a lot of stories because I have a student or had a student, she's now a doctor, and the horrific stories she was telling me of, just tragic stories, you know, of, of being in, in the hospital and seeing these COVID patients die. And, and the, one of the most important things that she wanted, uh, that, that she felt the patients wanted was to be touched. And they couldn't touch, the doctors couldn't touch them as well because they're wearing these gloves and they're covered in these kind of alien, you know, suits. It was just so tragic. And I thought, well, how, how can I reconfigure a work of mine, a previous work of mine that could relate to a uh, uh, the lack of touch now and the, and the the power of touch and so I invited Natalia Osipova to be part of a, du- a reimagining of a duet that I made with Sylvie Giem uh, some years back and we brought in some really interesting collaborators like Suhaima Manzur Khan who wrote um, a few of the lines uh, of a poem uh, original poem uh, called Do You Remember and then we had some wonderful musicians like um, Nina Harris, uh, who's the double bassist, and she also arranged the music, and uh, Rahil Hussein, who's a singer. So just a combination of all of us coming together. I have to say, it was such a wonderful excuse to get back into a studio and, and to be able to touch and to be able to feel the other dancer. That was just, yeah, it was a very special moment. Well, what I think is so extraordinary about what you do, Akram, is that you effectively use the human body to communicate universal themes, which give some of your work, like Outwitting the Devil, this really sort of intense energy. And, you know, you're, aside from um, Dancing Nation, you know, you're tackling huge themes like globalisation and our place in the world. And I especially love Desh, where you explored your origins. So I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a bit about your own story. My parents are immigrants who came here in the 70s and I was born here. Uh, in London, uh, South London, and uh, I grew up in a very strong Bangladeshi community. I, I, for me, the way I look at my body was at that time when I was a child, my parents had just lived through a war, you know, anybody who lives through a war, like we will never forget COVID, you know, this is a different kind of war. But nonetheless, my parents lived through a war for the independence of Bangladesh. That was in 71. My mother came over in 73. I was born in 74. So in a sense, they needed time to grieve, like we all do. And they needed also a museum so they can store things that might would have been lost in the war. And so the living body is a, is a, is a, is a living museum, if you like. So they kind of stored all these music uh, that was about the war, was about what it meant to be Bangladeshi. They stored dance choreographies all in my body <laughs> and my sister's body. Well, my sister was born four years later, but in a sense, I was used as a living museum and it was beautiful. So I grew up in this very strong Bangladeshi community, but I also grew up with a community that was determined to be brilliant at education because that's the reason why they came. They wanted their children to have better education. So all the kids went to private school except me and I couldn't get into a private school. I, I so wanted to get into a private school. I just... Why couldn't you? I just, I, I don't know. I. Uh, at that time, they said I was I was dumb, but I, I, I uh, so I couldn't get in, I couldn't get through the exams. But the thing was, I just a telltale sign was my mother said I couldn't speak a full sentence in English, a full sentence until the age of seven, but I could do a choreography of fifteen minutes. 
So my language was something else. It wasn't English or Bengali, even though I learned both of them subconsciously, but uh, my way of communicating was my body. And so I grew up, you know, in this environment where it was very chaotic because I grew up above my dad's restaurant. My dad had an Indian restaurant and um, we had loads of um, conflicts between my mother and father because my mother liked, my mother worked at Decca Records. And so she would get these scratched records that were given to her. They were going to throw it away. So they, they were useless. So she would bring it back from the factory and she would play Tom Jones, ABBA, all, all the oldies. And um, <clears throat> my father would be playing Bollywood films uh, simultaneously in this small room. So I, we grew up in a cacophony of disjointed music coming together. Indian Bollywood music plus Tom Jones. It, I mean, well, there could be a similarity there actually, but it was at the time it was just really chaotic. And so that became very norm to me. And I grew up in both cultures of musical references, whether it's Michael Jackson, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, um, uh, I grew up watching Charlie Chaplin. He was a big hero of mine, Buster Keaton. Uh, so Fred Astaire. So I think that shaped the way, I, you know, the way I see the world. And who discovered you? Huh, I, uh, I think I discovered myself <laughs> very but there late. was a moment when you were dancing and somebody yeah. discovered you. Yeah, I would say it was Don Fraser. Um, and Don Fraser is a director, theatre director, but actually he's a colleague. Of, he was a colleague of my mother's at a school in South Camden called South Camden Community School. And uh, he was a theatre teacher. And he said, this boy has something. So he put me on stage in school, uh, even though I'm not, I don't belong to that school. So every time they had a talent competition, I would be performing there because my mother taught that. But he really encouraged me. And there was a few uncles of mine. Um, uh, there was an uncle who just passed away huh, uh, three weeks ago that we had to bury in a really, it was just so surreal burying him. He, he died of COVID and uh, um, he just lives two doors down. And he was very encouraging also. You know, it just needs someone to go, I believe in you. And what was your first kind of big, breakthrough moment when you became a well-known? Um, well-known was much later, but I would say the first breakthrough in international scene of being exposed to an international scene was Peter Brook, working yes. with Peter Brook at the age of 13. Right. That was giant. So at the age of 13, Peter Brook saw you dance, didn't he? No, he, he saw, um, somebody recommended me, and then I, when I auditioned, that's where he saw me. But you know what's really interesting is I did the audition with... Um, which I came to discover much later with Joe Wright. Oh, right. so Joe Wright the was one of film the, director. Yeah, he was one of the actors auditioning. So we were both in the same room. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't get it. But anyway, I'm always teasing. I'm always teasing. Yeah, whatever happened to him? <laughs> what a loser. What a he, loser. Just became a, he just became a very big director. <laughs> what an amazing story. I love it. It's been so good to have you with us, Akram. And uh, you totally sold me on touch. I can't wait to see it on the iPlayer. Tell yeah, us more about quickly about what more we're going to see on Dancing Nation because there's loads a whole day thing, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, you know, when I saw the lineup, you know, Birmingham Royal Ballet, um, you've got Will Tuckett's work, you've got Boy Blues work. It's really kind of um, a, a, not a rainbow, but you know, crosses over many different areas. Kanduko's performing uh, by a, a choreographer called Yasmin Goda. Um, you've got English National Ballet, Stina who's made the choreography for that, a young choreographer who I loved. She was, she was one of my, uh, she was the queen of uh, the Willies in Giselle. Of she course. was the star of, of, of one of my works. You've got Humanhood, sorry, this is my son popping in. Uh, Humanhood, Rudy Cole and Julia Robert, um, they're both partners and they, they've got a company called Humanhood. So yes, it's, it's real. You've got Una Doherty, who's extraordinary. I love her work. Um, so it's, yeah, it's going to be really exciting, I think. And of course, We've got to ask whether your son is going to 
pick up the mantle of dancing? Um, since I, he's I now in the room with us. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. He just wants to beat people up. You know, he's, he's the opposite <laughs> of who I was. I never wanted to beat people up. I wanted to dance, but he somehow wants. I, he might be a wrestler or a jujitsu specialist because I'm into jujitsu now. Oh, really? Jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I'm yeah. I've, I've got into Cobra Kai, so I'm just looking uh, on Cobra Kai. So I think I might have to find a karate class. <laughs> Cobra Kai is this terrible really? spin-off from the famous Karate Kid film. <laughs> in 1984 and it's uh the same actors all now in their 50s and uh it's absolute junk television and completely addictive and it has made me think i'd love to take up a martial art maybe i should take up jiu-jitsu i think brazilian jiu-jitsu can um, you imagine i could train with akram khan that would be no strange. you know who you could train with you could train with your sons um, it's such an extraordinary form that, uh, you know, I got into it quite late because I just made a documentary. You know, I do a documentary a year with Swan Films um, for Channel 4. And I just did one which was, I think, released this year, I think. No, last year, sorry, um, called Extreme Combat. It was about violence and MMA, the fighter and the dancer. And so I, I don't know, I got hooked on this one um, martial arts teacher who was just talking like as if he was a choreographer and a philosopher and so I don't know I just got into that form of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu but it's all on the floor it's all mostly on the floor um, it's an extraordinary way of you know um, keeping fit and also it's it's very like a chess game it's really like a chess game and it's about listening as well so okay you're next actually big I want to see you do Ed we'll have we'll have, we'll have a match oh. brilliant so much has come out of this podcast. <laughs> Future wrestling star, jiu-jitsu training <laughs> program, and reaffirming our love of Sadler's Wells, Akram Khan, and of course the BBC. Thank you so much, Akram. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Charlotte. That's all we've got time for, but please keep listening and do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review if you can, as that really helps. You can also listen to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to all the big names in the interior design world. You'll find her podcast next to ours on countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you add forward slash newsletter to that address, you can sign up to all our newsletters. Yes, do sign up to the newsletters. I love them. And don't forget, the great british brands the what next 2021 edition is out too both digitally and on sale with country and townhouse at newsstands my big fat edition of great british brands landed through my letterbox this week and it is absolutely luxurious and indulgent read we will be back next week with some very exciting guests but for now very good luck to akram khan and to sadler's wells for thursday night All details will be on our website as usual. But for now, goodbye.